Ruth, chapter 1. That, if you're using the uh, Bible in the seat back in front of you, that is on page 187 or 188. Ruth, chapter 1. Jesus' greatest command to us, his followers, after his command that we love God, is his command that we love one another, that we love our neighbor as ourselves. But how can we love one another if we can't even find time in our busy schedules to spend with one another? Well, here's a story about these things. She lived in a man's world. Uh, A man was strong, a man protected, a man provided, a, a man defended. She had buried her husband. She had buried her two sons, her only two sons. She was left alone, utterly alone. Well, she did have her stubborn tag-along Moabite daughter-in-law, hardly a man. But who was Ruth then? A a burden, another mouth to feed? She could hardly feed her own. A a painful reminder of her past life in Moab, a, a part of everything she was trying to leave behind? Or was Ruth something more than that? Well, as Naomi plodded along, she tried to think it over. She had no man, no breadwinner, no advocate, no voice, no status, no one to to bear her children to take care of her in her old age, no hope. Surely the Lord was against her. But you can't just lie down and die yet. Not in a foreign land, at least. So instinctively, mindlessly, Naomi packed up the few things that she owned and she headed for home back to the town of Bethlehem. She had tried to tell Ruth to to warn her against coming along. Maybe Naomi could scratch out an existence among her own people for stalling starvation, at least for a while, but, but Ruth... Ruth was a Moabite. Ruth belonged in in Moab among her own people. She could go home to her own parents like her sister-in-law had. There was food on their table. They would be able to find her a husband and and give her a future and, and maybe she could have a life again. It was so obvious what Ruth needed to do. There there was nothing for Ruth in Israel. There she would be a foreigner, even an enemy, despised, mistrusted, overlooked, ignored. What could Naomi offer her except her misery and a share in in the bitter life that the Lord had given her? Naomi had tried to tell her not to come. Was it because she cared for Ruth's best interests? Naomi had told herself that it was, but, but there was that other thing too, the, the responsibility, oh, the, the heavy weight of having to care and, and think about someone else when she, she couldn't even bear the burden of herself. What was her real motivation in not wanting Ruth to come along? She mulled it over as she walked, and, and then she thought, oh, the, the thought itself just, just hurts my head. It, it's too hard to think when, when grief is shouting inside your head like this. Well, it didn't matter. Anyway, Ruth had insisted. Now Ruth would be there to give Naomi a, a decent burial and, and to mourn for her, and then to live and to die alone in a hostile and foreign land. 
Ah, those words. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Those words had settled it. And so the two of them walked together silently. Sometime later, they arrived in Bethlehem. And if Naomi had been able to recognize it, the name itself would have offered her some hope. Bethlehem, house of bread. But Naomi couldn't see hope. She, she wouldn't have hope. What a humiliation to, to arrive home after all these years and to be seen like this by old friends and relations. What a homecoming. She, she, she heard them exclaim, can this be Naomi? Yes, it's me, she thought. An exhibit of the Lord's bitter affliction. They had known Naomi in her fullness. She had had a husband. She had had two sons. They were from a family of some status. They owned land. They were from a well-known clan. She had gone out full. But now she had come home empty, alone, impoverished, destitute, humiliated, utterly alone. Whoever thought it could have turned out like this? No, she said, don't call me Naomi anymore. Naomi means pleasant. I am not pleasant. I am bitter. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Soon after, Ruth stood up in the dim light of their cramped new home. It was hardly a home, but it would have to do for now. Ruth couldn't just sit there and watch her mother-in-law day after day be bitter. She had to do something, anything. It was the time of the barley harvest, and maybe the two widows didn't feel like eating, but sooner or later they had to eat something. And Ruth had an idea. She'd heard that, uh, that the custom among Naomi's people was that the widows and the foreigners and the destitute, she was all three, that they were allowed to go out into the fields after they had been harvested, and, and they were permitted to pick up... Um, kernels of grain, whatever they could scrounge that had been left behind after the harvesters had passed through. And it was called gleaning, and it was, it was back-breaking work under the hot sun, to be sure, and, and dangerous work, too. Ruth was still in the flower of her youth, and, and she was a foreigner. She had no man to protect her purity. And, and these parts were not the best part of town, to say the least. But if she could find a man who would let her be and, and who would let her glean, then maybe if she kept at it, she could, she could scavenge enough kernels for, for a meal or more for her and for her mother-in-law. Besides, what other choice did she have? So Ruth asked permission, and, and Naomi replied, Go ahead, my daughter. Oh, it must have been nice to hear those words again. Ruth set out. She found a field, she began to glean. And the field that Ruth picked just happened to belong to Boaz, a relative of Naomi's ex-husband Elimelech. And not just any relative, but a rich relative, an uh, upstanding relative, a, a significant relative, a marriageable relative. What were the chances of that? 
Later that morning, the man himself arrived in the field, and after he had greeted the harvesters in the Lord's name, Ruth caught his eye right away. Who's that new girl in town, he asked his foreman. Who, who is she with? The foreman explained, uh, she's not with anybody. She's uh, just with her, uh, da- her uh, mother-in-law, Naomi. She's a foreigner from Moab of all places. She asked to glean here in this field, and she's been working at it hard all morning. Now, that last comment may not mean much to us men today, but, but uh, when it comes to the female mystique, you know, it may be that we think of beauty, we think of personality, but back then, they valued practicality, they valued strength and hard work. Boaz hurried right over to her. My daughter, he said, he was significantly older than she was, listen to me, don't go and glean in any other field. Uh, uh, Don't go away from here. Stay here with the young women who work for me. Work in the field behind where the men are harvesting. But keep your eyes on the field. Stay with the young women. I have told the men to keep their hands off of you. And whenever you're thirsty, have a drink from the water jars that the young men have filled. That way you can spend more time here and you don't have to go wandering off after in search of water. While Ruth was taken aback by his kindness, remember she doesn't know who Boaz is yet. So she carefully probes, why have I found favor in your eyes? Why did you notice me? I'm I'm only a foreigner. Boaz responded, I have heard the stories about you about all that you've done for your mother-in-law since your husband died, how you left the security of Moab to, to come and live with us, a people who you didn't know. May the Lord richly repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord under whose wings you have come to find shelter. Wow. These may have been some of the first kind words Ruth has heard in a long time. And she was moved. She was touched in some deep place. And so as demurely as this spunky girl could, she expressed what she was feeling to this man. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, sir, she ventured. You have spoken to my heart. I feel comforted. And yet I don't have the standing of one of your servant girls. Well, later that morning at lunchtime, one, uh, or I'm sorry, Ruth was sitting off by herself and, and Boaz's attention turned to her again. And, and he said, come on over, sit with us, join in the, in the family meal here, have some bread, try the dip, it's good. <laughs> then, then he gave her a large helping of, of roasted grain, more than she could eat. And when she'd finished and she'd gone back to her gleaning, Boaz spoke to his young men again and he said, Let her come and glean among the sheaves. Don't scold her. In fact, pull out some of the stalks to make her job easier. So Ruth gleaned there all that afternoon. And and at the end of a long, hot day, she she threshed the kernels out of the barley stalks she'd picked up. And and she wound up, would you believe it, with a huge 30-pound sackful of barley. Enough so that she no doubt had to hoist it over her shoulder and, 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 uh, and heave the thing home. And, and, and when she got home and, and she entered the house, Naomi saw how much she had and, and her eyebrows raised. Well, well, that's enough food for a week or two, 
for both of us, she exclaimed. And Ruth added excitedly, and that's not all. He gave me lunch too. Here, I've, I've saved you some of the leftovers. Where did you glean today? Naomi asked. Blessed is the man who noticed you. Well, as they fixed dinner, Naomi, or Ruth chattered to her mother-in-law all about it and, and, and all about this man. And, and the name of the man where I worked, she concluded, is Boaz. Ha! Huh, the Lord bless him, Naomi said. He has not stopped showing his faithful love to the living and to the dead. That man, she continued, is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. He's a relative who has a responsibility to, to help us, to provide for us, to protect us. Ruth's eyes widened. And he encouraged me to stay with his young men until the harvest is all brought in, she said. Daughter, Naomi replied, it would be good for you to stay with the young women who work for him. Because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the young women of Boaz. And for the next four months or so, all through the barley harvest and all through the wheat harvest, she gleaned in the fields of Boaz and she remained faithful to her mother-in-law, Naomi, living with her just as she had promised. Well, that's the first half of the story of Ruth. It's a story about taking time to be a friend. It's a story about loving one another. And I told it slightly differently than it reads in your English Bible, and that's not to take creative license, but it was to bring out the, the nuances of the Hebrew language and to fill in some of the cultural details so that we could understand the story better. In two weeks' time, we'll look at the rest of the story. Uh, but now, before I draw some implications of this story for this morning, Angelica is going to come and sing a song on this theme of the importance of being a friend.
How many of you have seen the uh, popular 80s movie, Back to the Future? A lot of us. It's a movie which plays with the idea of time travel, but it's also a movie which raises the question that we've all asked in one way or another, what if my parents had never met and gotten together? In the movie, Marty McFly, played by Michael J. Fox, travels back into the past to the time when his parents were both single, and, and he inadvertently disrupts their getting together. And, and so then the urgent tension in the movie becomes getting his parents together before it's too late. And the way that the movie creators capture the urgency of this is by having Marty periodically look at a picture of his family that he has in his wallet, and, and the longer that he fails to get his parents, his future parents together, first his sister and brother, and then he begin to fade from the photo. Well, the, the story of Ruth explores a, a question like that from the perspective of King David, Israel's greatest king. David was in many ways Israel's founding king. David rescued Israel from subjugation to the Philistines. David expanded and secured Israel's borders. David conquered Jerusalem and made it the holy city. David taught Israel to follow God's ways and to worship God. David secured God's promises to always place a son of David on the throne to rule and rescue God's people. And so ultimately, David was the progenitor and the prototype of Jesus Christ himself. No David, no Jesus, no salvation, no hope. The story in Ruth, of Ruth in many ways raises the question, what if David's parents, or in this case, great-grandparents, had never gotten together? And Ruth does this through the genealogy, which as we'll see in a couple weeks, end the book of Ruth with the revelation that Naomi was the great-grandmother of King David. In other words, it's as if the author of Ruth ends the story by saying, do you want to know why I'm telling you this story? Do, do you want to know why the book of Ruth is so important? Well, if what had happened in this story had never happened, King David would never have been born. Think about that. That puts the story of Ruth in a different perspective, and, and it has some powerful implications for the way we hear the story. After all, the story begins in just about the most precarious, hopeless, impoverished circumstances possible. A famine, a grieving widow with no sons, a foreigner in a strange land. These were, were classic and, and tragic expressions of grinding poverty back then. People in these situations regularly starved to death, literally, back then. They had very little hope. And yet it was out of these very circumstances that God brought about the birth of his people's greatest king and ultimately of the world's savior. God loves to raise up the lowly. God loves to bring beauty out of ugly things. God loves to turn the least into the greatest. God loves to bring life out of death. How does God do it? Well, not only is Ruth the story of how on a, on a macro level that God brought the greatest kingdom from the humblest circumstances, but on a micro level, it's also the story of how God brings Naomi, the destitute widow, from emptiness to fullness, from bitterness to joy. 
And God used two people to work this amazing redemptive turnaround in this story, Boaz and Ruth. Now on the surface, Boaz and Ruth have nothing in common. They're polar opposites. And yet, at the same time, they have striking similarities. They are in many ways opposites. Ruth um, is more destitute and powerless even than Naomi. While Boaz, meanwhile, is the paragon of wealth and status and power. Ruth is a have-not. Boaz is a have. Ruth is a persona non grata, an outsider, a foreigner. Boaz is right at the heart of of God's people, a well-respected leader of, of standing, enjoying privilege and honor among God's people. And yet, as different as these two are, they both have a couple things in common. First, they are both described in the story by the Hebrew word chayil. Now, chayil is a word which is hard to translate in, with one English word. It describes valor and, and nobility and standing and significance and excellence, praiseworthiness. And near the end of the story in Ruth 3, Boaz will remark that everyone knows that Ruth is a chayil isha, a woman of nobility. And earlier in the story, in Ruth 2, we learn that Boaz is a chayil gibor, a a man of standing, a a noble man. The second similarity between both and Ruaz, and that is that they both express this chayil, this noble character, by showing, here's another Hebrew word, chesed. Chesed. Chesed is often translated in the Bible as loving kindness. It expresses two things at once. It expresses tender love, And it expresses faithful commitment. Chesed is a a tender but tenacious commitment to the welfare of another. In other words, to show chesed is to be a true friend. In the Bible, chesed is one of God's primary attributes. God is faithful to God's promises. God is full of loving kindness. God faithfully bears with his people and he keeps his covenant to them even when his people are not faithful. God has chesed. And if we want to be godly, if we want to become chayil kind of people, excellent people, noble people in God's eyes, then we must also become people of chesed. True, faithful friends like Ruth and Boaz are in this story. Because chesed is right up there at the top as one of God's, um, or or rather, one of the most godly of virtues. Um, Jesus said that in Matthew 23 when he was uh, denouncing the Pharisees. And he said they they tithe even from their garden herbs. They're scrupulous on those matters, but they neglect the more important matters of the law, like justice and mercy and chesed, faithfulness. Now, the fact that Ruth and Boaz are so different, poor and rich, outsider and insider, just goes to show that anyone can be chayil. Anyone can be excellent and and noble and valorous because anyone can develop a character which is hesed. Anyone. On the one hand, you, you don't have to be rich and powerful to be a noble person. On the other hand, you don't have to be underemployed to have time to show faithful love. Anyone can learn to be a true friend. 
whether you're a Ruth or a Boaz. God delights to use the Ruths of the world. God delights to use the Boazes of the world to, to redeem those in humble circumstances, to fill the empty, to, to bring joy to the bitter, to transform precarious, hopeless circumstances into the flourishing security of the kingdom of God. If we'll learn to be the kind of friend that Ruth was, the kind of friend that Boaz was, who knows what God might accomplish through us. Sarah Groves, who wrote the song that um, Angelica sang for us, sings in another song about the pressures of our age which keep us from this kind of friendship. She sings, there's always just one more thing. There's always another task. There's always, I just have one more small favor to ask. And everything is urgent, and everything is now. I wonder what would really happen if I just stopped somehow. I'll be there in a minute, just a few places to go. You wake up a few years later, and your kids are grown. And everything is important, but everything is not. At the end of your life, your relationships are all you've got. And love to me is when you put down that one more thing, and you say, I've got something better to do. And love to me is when you walk out on that one more thing and say nothing will come between me and you, not even one thing. She captures our daily struggle, doesn't she? There, there's so much to do. There, there's so little time. I've, I've heard it said several times around CBC that, that in Westchester and Putnam counties, it, it's easier to write a check than to, to give of your time. Because we're so busy. And the truth is, many of us have few real friends. Few confidants that we could, we could ser- safely share our hearts with. Few buddies that we'd take a bullet for. And we live in a culture where researchers tell us people are getting lonelier and lonelier. And, and fewer and fewer people have anyone that they can really confide in. And so in this age of reality television, we watch relationships happen on TV instead of having our own. And faithfulness is a quaint, wistful idea from yesteryear. And while churches are supposed to be families of brothers and sisters whose father has commanded us to love one another, the truth is that we as Christians don't always do much better of a job. Francis Chan, the pastor who wrote the popular book Crazy Love, tells a story about his church, Cornerstone Church. He tells a story about a while back when an ex-gang member got baptized at Cornerstone and, and he fell in love with Jesus and he turned from his old lifestyle. But after several months, he, he stopped attending church. And when, when they asked him why he stopped attending, he, he answered, I had the wrong idea of what church was going to be like. When I joined church, I thought it was going to be like joining a gang. You see, in the gangs, we weren't just nice to each other once a week. We were family. Psychologist Larry Crabb reflects on our culture today, and he concludes, It's in my judgment, and I think a lot of people agree with this, that the future of the church depends on on whether or not it develops true community. 
If it does, then it's going to speak with power to this whole postmodern generation. And if it doesn't, it's going to become a dinosaur and hopelessly irrelevant. Well, the story of Ruth takes us back deep into the realm of true community, of friendship, of chesed. It takes us into the kind of friendship which is compelling, which is attractive to our culture, which will, will literally lay down our lives, which will give up our futures for the sake of our love for someone else. And as the people of God, that's what we're called to. That's the, the kind of love which is, is compelling, which is irresistible. And, and that's what it means when we say that our, our mission as a church is not only to know God and to show Christ, but to grow together. And as the story of Ruth demonstrates, God can use that kind of love to bring redemptive transformation. Now, it may not be easy to find a friend like that who will love us that way. But we can all choose to be such a friend. And I know that developing that kind of love within ourselves can feel out of reach. It can feel overwhelming. Where do we start? Well, they say a long journey begins with a single step, right? You can't love someone if you don't know anyone. You can't care for others if you have no time for them. So here's the challenge for this morning. Will you make time this week and next week and every week to be a friend to someone? That's all. Anyone can do that, rich or poor, great or least. And it's only a first step, but, it, but that will lead to other steps. And if you put one foot in front of the other, you'll find your way into a life of chesed. Now, if you don't know where to begin, I've put in your bulletin on a yellow sheet some ideas. Some of them are, are very small ideas. Some of them are bigger challenges. You can pick the idea that fits where you're already at, or you can make up your own idea. But hopefully these ideas can help us to take that step this week to be a friend to someone. Let's pray. God, it's so simple just to be a friend, to really love and care about the people you've put in our life. And yet we get so distracted, so caught up, running after other things. And I pray in your mercy and grace that you um, would bring us back to the simple way of love. And God, we have um, people in this congregation who are wonderful friends, who love really well. We have others who are desperately lonely, who are desperate for a friend and, and don't know where to start to even be a friend. And we have many of us who are, who are in between and who have put friendship aside for other things. And I pray that you would help each of us to find our way forward, to, um, to become a compelling community of love, um, to show something different, to show something of you and your heart 
in this place where you've put us. In Jesus' name, amen. Rich man.